Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable, and that's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back, and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Eugene, thank you for being on the gospel for planet Earth again. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I uh, I always love talking with you, and uh, last time we did this, this was, it was pretty cool. It was over the phone, but this face-to-face is always better. Yes, yeah. I agree. So hopefully the quality that you're hearing on the mic is also <laughs> better than coming through my phone. So, um, so Eugene, you're in town because uh, Brother Yoon is coming through. Uh, my cousin and I were deeply impacted by his book, and so we kind of helped arrange all these events going on here and uh so we've just been really having a blast over the past couple of days um but you recently um wrote a book about leaving buddha called leaving buddha and i'd love it if you shared with a a little bit with us about that because Mm -hmm. uh one of the things you mentioned in your little uh spiel about it was that um it reveals some of the deep dark secrets of, of buddhism and we're sitting in Asheville, which is, I don't know, if did you get a chance to walk around downtown? I did. So yesterday we had decided let's go to a Brazilian beef restaurant. So for the last like uh, year and a half or so, um, I've basically been uh, uh, eating in a way where it, my main diet is mainly meat and, and meat. <laughs> uh, you suffer. <laughs> yeah. So um, when we saw that there was a Brazilian steakhouse just down the road, I decided, yeah, yeah let's go do that for lunch. And so I got a chance that the uh, long story short my gps took me to wall street instead of walnut and so i ended up walking through the entire like little town yeah. until i realized okay this brazilian so if you're familiar with Asheville, for those that are familiar with Asheville, uh there is that there's there's this um uh, wall street which is kind of this cute little road that goes through the middle of town it kind of feels like an artesian community mm-hmm. you know little restaurants cute boutiques like a little europe exactly yeah. and there's this even a climbing wall in the middle of town mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, long story short i was able to kind of walk from end to end, beautiful day yesterday, so I was able to see you know a, a, a little bit of Asheville. I'm familiar with this area just because I did work with Samaritan's Purse for a while, okay. and they're kind of based very close to here in mm-hmm. Boone, North Carolina, and I would fly into um, this this area and then go and join them in Boone. And so I got familiar with Asheville area, but never the downtown. So yesterday was my first time. Well, you may have noticed that there are there's uh, a strong Hindu Buddhist vibe going on in Asheville. Yes, I did. Uh, recently, we were doing some street evangelism, and a guy's playing playing the drums. And uh, my friend, who is from a Buddhist background, he's uh, Indian, and uh, he put his hand on him and said, "We just wanted to bless you in Jesus' name." And he's like, "Thank you." And then he stopped playing his drums. He's like, "Did you say Jesus?" He's like, "I'm <laughs> Buddhist," and he was really, you know. Was showing kind of a bravado of offense, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that Asheville has an idea of a deep, dark secret of Buddhism. So maybe you could just walk us through the story a little bit, maybe through writing the book and yeah, why why write the book at all? Why and and I think initially the book began because you were wanting to reach out to Tibetans. Am I saying that right? Yep. Tibetans in uh, Tibet and. 
to the Buddhists in Tibet, I should say, what what brings that on? Like when, when you go to Tibet, what makes you say, hey, we need to do a work here? Yeah. Well, um, Tibet is home to some of the most unreached people in the world. Um, it is a kind of a, a claim of the highest elevated area in the world oftentimes. So my background is in the military. Mm-hmm. And in the military, as a military unit, when you are in battle, um, you want to take the high ground. Uh, the high ground gives you a great view of the surrounding area. Um, it's also much harder for the enemy to fight up than it is for you to fight down. By having the high ground, you have momentum. You have the, the big advantage. Uh, in the world today, there's no high ground like there is in the Himalayas. And in the Himalayas, one of the things that is permeating throughout the Western civilization is this influence of Eastern religions, uh, primarily Hinduism and Buddhism. And when I say Buddhism, there's really no bigger influencer in the Western world than the Dalai Lama. So the Dalai Lama has been... In the this, Western world. In the Western world, yes. Uh, as well as in the Eastern world. But in the Western world, even Christians, I've heard pastors often quote the Dalai Lama. Mm. The Dalai Lama is thought of as a person of peace and love and tranquility, right? You have these these items that are closely associated with Buddhism. And in many ways, I've also thought that until um, I started working in Tibet. And Tibet is the root. That is the foundation of Buddhism. Um, The Buddhism that people are exposed to in Japan, China, Thailand, Southeast Asia, these areas are... um, uh, diluted forms of Buddhism. They are not pure Buddhism. How, Whereas, does, how does that compare to the Western? Is that even more diluted or it's about equality? The West is even more diluted. Okay, and the yeah. reason why is because the West Westerners come from a Christian Judaic background. Mm-hmm. And in the Christian Judaic background, whether you're a Christian or not, does not matter. Mm-hmm. In a Christian Judaic background, from the time that you were born and rise, raised up in this kind of society, you are influenced with the value system of a Christian Judaic background. And with that value system, you have ideas that are innate. They're, they are uh, formulated in our legislative laws. They are also a part of our everyday interaction, whether it's with uh, businesses, whether it's with each other, whether it's with education, whatever. We have a, a set of ethics that is grounded and rooted in Christian Judaic values. Mm -hmm. And what we have in the West is a um, type of Buddhism that has been shaped by Christian Judaic values. Uh, So, for instance, there's an emphasis on love. There's an emphasis on peace. There's an emphasis on freedom. Um, These ideas appeal in the West. And so Buddhism packages itself to be sold and consumed by people in the West that have these values. These are not the values of Tibetan Buddhism. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So while working with this monk, so uh, his, his name, the name that we give him for the book is Tenzin. This is not his real name because to identify him by his real name would make problems for him uh, in Tibet with other Buddhists. It would also make problems for him with the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. So we've had to change his name for the book. But Tenzin, the name that we gave him in the book, begins to explain the value system, the background, the foundations of Buddhism. And when he starts talking, it's a foreign language. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what he's talking about. This is not 
the Buddhist that I hear, you know, walking the streets of Stockholm, Sweden. This is not the Buddhist that I would probably encounter if I was to sit down at one of these more artesian uh, restaurants in Asheville. Um, their ideas that they would tell you about Buddhism would closely align with Christian Judaic values that um, we need to respect one another. We need to um, allow one another freedom to make our own decisions, to go on our own journey to discover truth. Um, and I put truth in quotations. Um, we need to uh, be peaceful and loving and, and help one another. These ideas are not Buddhist ideas. Um, I've read through the Book of Buddha uh, several times I've studied the life of Siddhartha Gautama, uh, which is the founder, the very first Buddha. Um, he comes from a Hindu background, and one of the things that you find in Buddhism, in its purest form, is Hinduism. And Hinduism is not the, something that is friendly to those from a Christian Judaic background, because there you do not have absolute values. You do not have absolute right and wrong. You do not have absolute good and evil. These are concepts that are in Christian Judaic societies, but not in Hindu Buddhist societies. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And yeah. so you're saying Tibet is kind of, is that's where it all began. Uh, the, so the birthplace of Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha, um, he was born in um, ancient India, which is modern day Nepal. So he was actually born in Nepal, and he spent his time traveling in India. But it was when it was brought to the Tibetans, it was the reincarnation of the Buddha who brought it to Tibet. And the Tibetans believe that um, to Buddhism started in Tibet, and that Tibetans come from a monkey that had sex with a woman, and that gave birth to the to the Tibetan people. That then grew to be Buddhist, I'm and this, yes, <laughs> and, and I think that there might be even some evolutionists that would not disagree with that completely. <laughs> right, right, I know. I hear but you. Um, but they also derive much of what they believe from what's called the ancient Bun religion. So the Bun religion, uh, it's B with two dots, which is like a uh sound. So Bun, uh, this ancient religion of Tibetan is uh, closely aligned with what we see with Tibetan Buddhism today, hmm. uh, which is extremely violent, very volatile. Um, the people are enchained in slavery. There is a caste system in, in the society, very much like India, that China, for all the bad things that China has done when China invaded uh, Tibet took over Tibet. They got rid of this caste system. Mm. Um, so there was very much slavery, the practice of slavery, um, oppression onto the poor or the lower class, the the lifting up of the uh, the clergy members within the the Buddhist faith, and uh, yeah, and so we and we still see that practice today, not in an extreme form as it was prior to the invasion of the of the the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. However. It's still there. It's no longer institutionalized. It's no longer institutionalized on a on a national level. And can you explain to us the relationship between Hinduism and Buddhism? Yes. What, what's going on there? Buddha was a Hindu, so he was born and raised a Hindu. Okay. His mother had a vision of a white elephant coming, and and basically the the prophets 
uh, interpreted her dream that she was going to be giving birth to the Buddha from this white elephant dream, which is a very strong symbol in Hinduism. Hmm. And so Buddha, um, a lot of people do not know this about him. His father was a king. So he had, he had the three exposures in his journey. And so because he was told at the prophecy of the birth of his son of Buddha that your son will either be a great king or a great religious leader. Now, his father wanted him to be a great king, take over after him, after every father. I mean, you have children. Yeah. So every father kind of wants to see their son take over in their footsteps or uh, something of that sort. And so what he did is he, because he was the king of this kingdom in Nepal, what he did was he isolated um, his kingdom from anything that had to do with poverty, death, sickness. So if you were poor, if you were a beggar, if you were sick, if you were old, um, you were not allowed into the holy city. So the sun was not allowed to see you. And so Guantama Siddhartha grew up not knowing anybody sick, not knowing anything about death, not knowing anything about poverty. So he was isolated from all these things. He was also trained as a warrior. Um, uh, as a king, he would have, or a prince, he would have gone through extensive warrior training. And he did train um, in martial arts. He did train in the art of war. He, he uh, learned to fight with a sword and a spear. So he was a warrior. Um, he did get married. He did have a child. Um, but then he had three instances where he was exposed one instance where he was exposed to a beggar asked questions didn't find uh, adequate answers to those questions he was then exposed to someone who was sick he was then exposed to someone who was dead and so those three exposures uh, put him on a journey to go and find out how to eliminate suffering not for the world world but to eliminate suffering for himself. It was a very selfish endeavor. Um, and that might be crossing the line for some people. So some people that may not agree with that, I would not take that hard stance. But from my reading, I found it selfish. And the reason I found it selfish was this. He snuck out in the middle of the night, left his wife with their child, didn't say goodbye, um, had no connection with him afterwards. The son grew up. His son grew up not knowing his father, really wanted to see his father, wanted to hug his father, was kept from it when he eventually returned um, and uh, and was told that the wife, told the wife that he was too holy now for her to touch wow. or to be, you know, to in any way engage. So she had to live this life now uh, as a single mother. And the, the, the child had to live knowing that his father was alive, but just didn't want to be with him, wanted to go out on his own journey. So he goes out on his own journey seeking truth. And he does this through Hinduism, through his belief in Hinduism. So he began to uh, take the journey of finding out the truth. And so he had different teachers who began to show him the way using Hinduism. And um, what separates him from others is that he um, was able to come to his own conclusions about what truth is um, while uh, meditating, while uh, he was under a, um, a, a tree. He had this, he had this, this uh, epiphany that allowed him to understand what it meant to be able to reach enlightenment. And to reach enlightenment, basically he goes into this nirvana and absolute nirvana means to not exist. You leave 
existence. Mm. And so just like Hinduism has reincarnation, Buddhism has reincarnation. Um, a lot of people believe that you are praying to Buddha or spirits or you're on your own journey. This is not true. The deeper you get into Buddhism, the more you get into the different uh, demons and uh, gods and goddesses that help you on this journey. And those gods and goddesses are Hindu gods and goddesses that help you on your journey. Another relationship between Buddhism and Hinduism that people are not aware of. So uh, a couple of questions. One, when we have a white elephant gift, is that like a, a, a blindly racist event? We're <laughs> <laughs> tossing around someone's iconic uh, holy thing yeah. and saying, I don't want this. Bring everything you don't want. <laughs> I'll think of that every time I go to a white elephant party now. Yeah. Uh, but so Buddhism is a branch of Hinduism. It has its foundations. I don't think Buddhists would like to see themselves as a branch, but they, they most certainly are. Hindus do not have a problem with Buddhists. Buddhists do not have a problem with Hindus. Interesting. So Hinduism, I know, has a, vi a very violent um, core to it. I don't know much about Hinduism. Um, maybe can you just give us a brief synopsis of that just so people understand, you know, we're talking about the difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. What is the core of Hinduism? So the core of Hinduism is a, a, a group of writings that you can find throughout that mainly on uh, in India. So in India, what you have is this, this um, smorgasbord of gods and goddesses, if you will, uh, that are very closely similar to what you would find in Greek mythology. So there's a lot of mythology that follows along um, when you have when you look at the god of Vishnu, uh, when you when you look at these the the different gods, the war gods that protect you, the gods that give you wisdom, the gods that can bring evil, the gods that rule the different levels of hell, the gods that rule the different levels of heaven. Um, so you have all these different gods, and it depends on where you come from. Um, that would um, dictate really what god is is your family god, what god is your uh, regional god. Um, and there's the, there are different gods in Hinduism that people pray to for protection. They pray to for wealth. They pray to for wisdom. Um, there is it's a very India. If you've ever been to India, is a very spiritually active world. Um, you have people that pull off amazing superhuman feats by praying to their gods and goddesses. They do things like sit in certain positions for months or years at a time. They're able to pull off supernatural feats like pull a truck using only the, their flesh and they'll make hooks that will go into their flesh and then they'll be able to pull these these large objects with, with a lot of weight and mass um, using um, their skin or their teeth or their ears or their nose or their tongue. Things that should be ripped apart by them doing these things. They're able to show the power of their gods, the power of their demons. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a very spiritually active area. And anybody that goes to India will quickly be exposed to um, the, the different gods and goddesses in Hinduism. So it's an ancient form of polytheism uh, where you have a, a wider range of, uh, of gods and goddesses that are very much stooped in their mythology in the same way for those that are familiar with Greek mythology um, like Zeus and Pegasus and all of that. You, you, you have the exact same thing in India. And so really the connection then is in both cases, you're trying to overcome pain and obstacles like you're going to, 
you'll, you'll use your tongue with a hook and you'll pull this truck. You're just going to overcome pain and suffering in the world. Yeah. So you're going to Tibet and you say they're unreached people. Uh, so the gospel hasn't penetrated Tibet much. Um, and then you hear a story from a, a former uh, Buddhist monk and you're compelled to write a story. To Tell us a little bit about that. What made you write this story? There, as far as I know, this is the only book out there from a former Buddhist monk that writes about his conversion to Christianity. So it's it's a story that it, his story of conversion is not the only one. I've met other monks that have come to Christ, but he's the first one that I know of that actually put his story into a book form so that other people can learn from it. The other thing is that um, he reveals a completely a foreign concept within Tibetan Buddhism that most Buddhists are not aware of. Um, most Buddhists, if you talk with them, even here in the in Asheville area, because it's it's such a faddish thing, right? There's mm. there's there's not a lot of study. It's 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 smoke some pot and it, become a Buddhist. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, because uh, people feel that you know it is this and it's this new age Asian enlightenment. And I tell you that there's no nothing further from the truth. It's not enlightenment. Buddhism is slavery. Um, it's uh, it's violent. It's dark and it's imposed ignorance. Um, so it, within the Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist, so it's very important that I, uh, that I continue to emphasize the difference between Tibetan Buddhist and, and Buddhism. Um, because a, a, a Buddhist, for instance, from Japan or Asheville would not recognize the Buddhism that I'm explaining here. But it is the root of, it is the, it is the, the um, uh, orthodox, if you will, form of Buddhism. And so uh, what you have in Tibetan Buddhism is debate um, every single day, uh, especially in the monasteries. Yeah, we don't do that here. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and the debate is rigorous, and it's fascinating to watch. Um, it is done with spiritual commands. Mm -hmm. um, so you always have – just let me explain the setting a little bit. So if you go to any monastery um, in Tibet – um, you will see that they have certain times for debate on a weekly basis. And some of those debates have great debaters and it'll bring out big crowds. And so the format that you have, it's very much like a, a competition. You have one, one monk that will be the defender of the faith and he will be in a sitting position. And then you will have another, which will be the challenger and he will be in the standing position. And so whenever the person in the standing position, what he will do is he will begin um, quoting things about Tibetan Buddhism. And when he does, he will do a little bit of a dance. Now, you can't see this on an audio form, but basically what he's doing is he's dancing. And then you will see him stomp his foot and clap his hands. And that is to uh, bring down the, the, uh, the, the Buddhism of wisdom and this thunder is to uh, scare away the demons. So the clapping of the hands, the stomping of the foot is to scare away the demons of confusion as you're trying to get to truth. And so you have this debate that, and this is, this is very common throughout Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, every monastery that you have, they have these debates and it's the monks that do these debates. And so they'll say things like, um, you know, uh, Buddha, uh, believes that you need to have your own individual journey for truth, you know, and the person sitting will say, I agree. 
or I don't agree. And if they don't agree, what they will do is then go to the scriptural writings and they'll defend the faith in which they believe. And then the, the, the person that is um, um, kind of the, the standing person, the person that is the aggressor, the person that is the challenger, that challenger will then ask follow-up questions to prove that he is right, where the defender will then uh, bring up information that he is right. And then they go back and forth on this. When you mentioned the scripture, you said the scriptural text. What is the Hindu or the Buddhist text? What is that called? It's called the Book of Buddha. The Book of Buddha. Yeah, the Book of Buddha. So the Book of Buddha, and if you follow the Book of Buddha, it, it very much goes along the same lines in some ways as Christianity, as Jesus. So uh, in many ways, it's almost like Satan had put up a false um, uh, way to be able to attack Christianity before Christianity even became a religion. So with Buddhism, you have disciples. With Buddha, you have miracles. Um, with Buddha, there's kind of this woman at the well type of story. Um, you, you have a lot of these similarities between the book of Buddha and um, the Bible. And so when they are doing their debates, they are trying to hone their skills on defending the, the Buddhist faith, which is honorable. However, you cannot debate Jesus. Jesus is not allowed in these debates. There's no Christian faith. You can debate Hinduism. You can debate Islam. You can debate anything that you want. It, you cannot bring Jesus into these debates. And is this something you've witnessed? Have uh, you seen? Have you seen someone try? Or or how? Like how did you learn that? Uh, the Tibetan monk that um, we write the story leaving Buddha. He shares about his experience for the first time hearing about Jesus and then trying to bring it up. Um, in So he was studying under the Dalai Lama at a monastery in India when he learned about Jesus. And when he tried to bring it up, he was shut down and threatened right away. Like this, There's no room for this at all. And it's considered that Jesus brings an element of confusion. And, and with that confusion, you can break up the Tibetan faith. And so it is, it is outlawed. You cannot bring it up. So when he goes back to Tibet, he still can't break away from these questions. So he starts talking about Jesus, but every time, shut down. When he finally becomes a believer, out of extreme faith, um, he becomes a believer Makes you know because the only thing he's ever known is Buddhism. Uh, his parents gave him over to be a monk when he was a young boy, so he's only been trained to be a monk. That's all the only life he's ever known. He owns nothing. He has no clothes. He has no job skills. He has no money. He has no bank account. He's separated from his family. So if he leaves the Buddhist faith, he has nowhere to go. Uh, you know, the, the Buddhism provides everything for him. You know, his housing, his food, his everything, um, his social status. Uh, when he becomes a Christian, the monks freak out and they want him killed. So they take him, they beat him for three days, they want him to die a slow, agonizing death. Mm. And within that time, um, he is able to pray to God and, and see God revealed to him and see God move miraculously and secure his release. Um, and so after three days of being beat, um, he realizes that uh, he's about to die, but at the last moment, um, he is he is helped to get out. And so in the darkness of night, he escapes knowing that and warned that if he ever comes back, he'll be killed. So the reason they want to beat the reason they beat him and want to kill him is because he's bringing up Jesus or because 
like what what are they threatened by they're, they they were threatened because he became a believer. And so for him as a monk, as not just a monk, but one of the top teachers, um, his job was to run reading. So he, he read at wedding ceremonies, funeral ceremonies, which is big business in Buddhism. So when you were born, when you die, when you're married, you know, all of these things, you, you hire monks. So it's very important when we look at monks to not confuse them with clergy within the Christian world. Because within the Christian world, clergy members serve the people. In the Buddhist world, the people serve the clergy. Mm. Um, in the Buddhist world, um, the clergy members add nothing to the value of life. Um, they actually suck from it. Mm. Um, the people devout, devote themselves to Buddhism and it is a tax. It is an anvil hung around their neck. It is a heavy weight, a burden that they must carry like an ox. Um, when you see the, the people pray, they pray more zealously than Christians. They, they, pray more devotedly than Christians. So for instance, it is required in uh, Buddhism that you pray in the way that you stand up. You then lay down and then lay out prostate and then you stand back up again and then you go from your hometown all the way to Lhasa. If that's 2,000 miles, you stand up, you lay out prostate, you stand up again, you lay out prostate, you do that cycle over and over again, the whole distance. Um, the people pray every day, turning these cycles, these wheels of these prayer wheels that are to go around and around and around to show the cycle of life um, so that people are remembered uh, and that they get points and they store up points for doing these kind of prayers. If they don't do these prayers, then they're a lack of points. So it's kind of like uh, a point system that you would get for flying a certain airline, you know, airline points. If you get so many points, then you get maybe a free seat to fly somewhere. In in Buddhism, if you build up enough points through prayer, if you build up enough points through turning the prayer wheels, if you build up enough points by doing the things that they tell you within Buddhism, then you can reincarnate as a, at a higher level. We don't see that really in Christianity. And so that devotion that the, that the followers have benefits the clergy. But mm. the clergy do not benefit the people. The clergy very much are leeches on a society. They don't develop anything. This is why when you look at Hinduism, for instance, okay, I'm, uh, when you look at schools, I'll, I'll talk about my son's school in Hong Kong, goes to a British school. There's this overwhelming desire, which I assume the same as here, to accommodate for the idea of meditation uh, in, in an Eastern way. So Eastern meditation, yoga classes, I'm sure are very popular here, right? Stretching, breathing exercises that are done in a way that actually invoke spiritual um, um, bodies. And so what happens is... Spiritual uh, bodies? Yes. So what you have... So when people say namaste... For instance, when you come into a yoga uh, studio, it sounds very innocent, right? It sounds like hello. What they'll tell you is that means hello in, in Hindi. No, it actually doesn't. It means I recognize the deity in you. So when you're saying namaste and they say namaste back, it means that you recognize the deity in each other. That there's a, there's a spirit inside of you. There's a spirit inside of the other person and you're both recognizing that spirit saying namaste. Um, when you are doing the chants, Within different yoga studios, you have different chants, but you will do these chants, chants that um, uh, have to reach certain pitches. 
they sound like you're humming, but you're not. You're at, what you are doing is you are making reverberations in the sound with the sound so that it will beckon the call of different deities. So this is a very spiritual thing within the breathing exercise. Here's the thing that I would say though. Forget about all of that. What is the benefit of doing these exercises? What is the benefit? In my son's school, what they say is that children that meditate are known to get better grades. Really? Have you been to Indian schools? <laughs> they would give their right leg, many of those students, to be able to come to a Christian uh, country and study at Christian schools. Uh, the best schools in all of India are Christian Catholic schools. Southern India is very well known for being highly educated. In Northern India, not so much. Why? Because that's where you have the biggest influence of missionaries. In fact, the Apostle Thomas, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, made his way to Chennai, Southeast India, and preached the gospel there and made and established there. Many people have Thomas as their last name as a result. So I would say this, just really quickly, just for people to know. Buddhism, Hinduism has done nothing to benefit the people of India. The people are poor because of Hinduism. The people are more impoverished because of Buddhism. They do, what, what inventions have they come out with? Did they invent the internet? Did they invent the car? Did they invent the airplane? Did they invent iPhones? Did they invent anything of significance? And it's not because the Indian people are not intelligent. They are. They're very intelligent. But the religion shackles them. The religion actually makes them dumber. The religion holds them in darkness. And when you are striving to survive in darkness, you don't have a lot of time for ingenuity. You don't have a lot of time for creativity, the arts, the sciences, academia, even leisure activities are blessed in Christian areas. They're not in Hindu Buddhist areas. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can look at it and measure it. These are measurable things that you can measure. So my, my, my point is, if these things benefit societies and people, why isn't India one of the most enlightened countries in the world? Why are they struggling so much with poverty, violence, darkness? Why is it that we don't see signs of their enlightenment? Um, because they meditate more than anybody else. And in fact, the people here in Asheville try to learn from them. Which makes me so hurt. Like when I go to Nepal or Tibet or the mountains in India and I see a stupid Westerner from a Christian Judaic background <laughs> in a meditation pose praying at one of the dirty, nasty temples. And because these, these temples are nasty. They smell bad. They're, they're not clean. They're dirty. Uh, and, and the people that are there serving are living in poverty on a fraction of the kind of money that these Westerners are bringing in, on a fraction of the kind of mm -hmm. happiness that these Westerners are bringing in. I seriously have to keep myself from walking up behind them and just smacking them in the back of the head for being <laughs> stupid in public. Because when I see this, I'm like, do you not know the value of what you've been given through the forefathers that sacrificed so much to bring you the gospel? Mm -hmm. The gospel meaning the truth. To bring you truth. To set the captives free. And you're leaving freedom to put yourself in a self-imposed poverty and self-imposed slavery? It makes no sense to me. At all. You're right. Well, Leaving Buddha is a good title for it. And yeah. um, I'm excited about the book. I, 
I was the reason I haven't gotten to it yet is because I started to read Democracy in America, which is huge. <laughs> but I might have to put that aside and go ahead and read it because I think I'll read it a lot faster than Democracy in America. <laughs> How can somebody get a hold of the book? So you can get it either on our website at backtojerusalem.com. You can get it at Amazon. Um, the the publisher is um, uh, really good friends of ours. They have been our publisher for most of our books. So anybody that's familiar with Whitaker House, which is one of the largest Christian book distributors in the United States. States, um, they can also get it on Whitaker House, at WhitakerHouse.com. Um, but really anywhere they can get the book. Well, we'll have links for the book today um, underneath today's podcast. And we're going to go ahead and wrap it up because we're going to also uh, – We want I want to save you because we want you to come back next <laughs> week and tell us a little bit more about uh, Back to Jerusalem, not just in Tibet and India but around the world. So thanks for being with us. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.